0: You are listening to an Enoch Pratt Free Library podcast.
1: Your journey. Your journey. Your journey. Your journey starts here. Here.
2: Hi, everyone. Thank you so much for being here for what will be a really lovely discussion. Um, I always want to thank the Enoch Pratt Library for partnering with us throughout the pandemic. It has been an incredible bright spot for us to still be able to do these events uh, and still partner with the Pratt in in a similar but also very different way that we used to. Um, A few little things about the Ivy right now. The biggest thing, is most of you will know, Saturday is Independent Bookstore Day. We are so excited to be hosting a housewarming party for the Ivy. Um, It is outdoors um, and distance, and masks are required, but we will have a book sale and ceramics and some lovely authors are coming to sign books and it'll be a lot of fun. So that's on Saturday uh, from 10 until sundown. Um, Other than that, we're open for open browsing every day um, and no appointment is needed for that. So just come on in. Um, Without further ado, I will turn it over to
3: Shailene. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Emily. The Pratt is always thrilled to be partnering with the Ivy Bookshop, and I know that for me personally, the Ivy's delightful newsletters and great customer service have been a comfort throughout the pandemic, Thank you so much to all of you for being here for this very special evening of readings and discussions to celebrate the publication of This Is What America Looks Like. I have a copy of the anthology that I've been dipping into, and it's really a pleasure to read and a wonderful showcase of talent. And we do have copies on order for the Pratt Library, so you can reserve a copy to check out from us. Um, I want to take this opportunity to remind everyone that the library has reopened its doors for limited browsing and computer access. Our locations are operating at 25% capacity, and of course, the safety of everyone is a high priority. I also want to let poetry lovers and poets out there know that we're offering a poetry workshop this Saturday afternoon. And you can find out more about that and other great Pratt virtual events if you go to prattlibrary.org. So now it's my pleasure to introduce to you tonight's moderator, Kathleen Wheaton. Kathleen grew up Sorry, Um, Kathleen grew up in California, studied at Stanford University, and worked for 20 years as a journalist in Spain, Argentina, Brazil, Mexico, and Bethesda, Maryland. Her fiction has appeared in many journals and three anthologies, and she is a five-time recipient of Maryland State Arts Council grants. Her collection, Aliens and Other Stories won the 2013 Washington Writers Publishing House Fiction Prize. Since 2014, she has served as president and managing editor of the Washington Writers Publishing House. Please give a warm virtual welcome to the moderator for this event, Kathleen Wheaton.
4: Hi, thank you so much, Shailene. Um, And also, uh, thanks so much to the Pratt Library for hosting us. Um, Briefly, for those who may never have heard of our tiny press, uh, Washington Writers Publishing House is an almost 50-year-old cooperative based in DC. We hold an annual fiction and poetry contest every fall, which is open to writers and poets who live in the DC Baltimore area. The judges are all former winners. um, And each spring, two manuscripts, one poetry and one fiction are selected to be published. So our 2020 project, um, This Is What America Looks Like, is a big departure for us. Um, It's an anthology with 100 poets and writers. We expanded um, to include all of Virginia and Maryland. Um, It was the brainchild of fiction editor Carolyn Bach um, this is what America looks like was a chant that she heard at the January 2017 Women's March, a sort of creed coeur from those who were alarmed by what seemed to be the ascendancy of nativism, sexism, homophobia, white supremacy. So this is what America looks like was envisioned as a joyful, diverse retort to all of that. So last February, um, the press decided to go ahead with the anthology and Caroline was joined by Jonah Colson as poetry editor and they put out a call for submissions. And this is what America looks like was the writing prompt that um, authors were asked to consider um, when they submitted their manuscripts. Um, About two weeks later, COVID-19 was declared a pandemic and this was only the beginning of what um, turned out to be an extraordinarily difficult year, as we all know. I think it's often true that writers sit down thinking they know what they're going to write and then discovering that what has appeared on the page is completely different from what they imagined. And that was definitely the case here. Um, We had over 500 submissions and the resulting book um, is not what we thought it would be, but it really is, I think, a mosaic portrait of this moment in time, this moment in our history. Anyway, I'm going to stop talking now and let you hear from four writers whose work appears in the book. After they read, uh, we're going to be discussing, along with Caroline and Jonah, this literary moment. What is the creative state of our union? And I hope you'll join in the conversation by putting questions in the chat or on Facebook. Um, so we'll start out with poet Sarah Browning. Her books are Killing Summer and Whiskey in the Garden of Eden. She co-founded and for 10 years directed Split This Rock, with which many of you are probably familiar. Her fellowships include um, ones from the Lillian E. Smith Center, the DC Commission on the Arts and Humanities, Yaddo, Mesa Refuge, the Virginia Center for Creative Arts, and the Adirondack Center for Writing. So here is Sarah Browning.
1: Hello, everybody. Thank you so much, Kathleen. It is just an incredible honor and uh, privilege to be here with you. I wanna thank the library, wonderful uh, staff um, and everything they do for Baltimore and the whole region. I wanna give a shout out to our ASL interpreter. Thank you for being here. And uh, especially you all at the uh, Washington Writers Publishing House and to be able to read with these marvelous writers, uh, Hayes is my, uh, my poetry heart. So um, I just feel so lucky to be here this evening. I have two poems in the anthology, and uh, the first one is uh, a Me Too poem um, that's, I think, all the content warning that you need. And in my kind of intro, uh, you know, we had to write something about why we were submitting to this in, these poems. And I wrote this was uh, something that happened to me over 40 years ago, but tragically, it keeps on happening every day um, to girls and young women. When you didn't know to call it. 13 years old, gangly and tall, on a visit to family, friends, the oldest boy, 16, 16, walks in the living room and looks at you like that, and you freeze in fear and flattery. Are you pretty after all? When you swim in the creek behind the house, his hands are on you. Tits and crotch, crotch and tits, you don't know whether to paddle away or toward him. Did you windmill your limbs in the water, or did you, you whisper it to your sister on the drive home, and what is in your voice, pride, confusion, shame, all these? Are you pretty after all? and, um, fast forward more than 50 years, excuse me, more than 40 years. Um, it's been a strange and, uh, awful in so many ways, a year and a half. Um, but at the same time, I have been incredibly fortunate, uh, because I moved to Philly, not because I moved to Philly, because I miss all of you in D.C. desperately. But I um, met someone and fell in love. And this poem, uh, it dates from the pandemic. And uh, so it's about that. It's about our, the pandemic moment and um, the horrors of America. Um, it's called The Drive Down Back Hollow Road. And there's an epigraph from Marcelo Hernandez Castillo. It's easy to make honey from what is beautiful and what is not. The drive down Back Hollow Road. We take the turn, and why not, these days, of no touch, except each other. How I reach for the side of your face as you drive, stroke your beard, the surprise of its silk. The hillsides open before us, muddy cattle and daffodils. After so much rain, the ditches pulse with spring peepers. At the horrible Trump banner, we turn back, we think, toward our cottage, the summer places and ski slopes, the state parks. The road takes us and takes us, winding on switchbacks until at last we are stopped by a man who says we can go no further. Ditching up ahead. But here, at the only driveway where we can reasonably turn around, at the bottom of that steep hollow, a rainbow sign, pure, unfiltered honey. I squelch through the mud up the drive. In this mountainous region of West Virginia, the person who greets me is the first I have seen who is not white a tiny Asian woman in work boots, hair cut short. She invites me in, but it is plague time, so I politely decline. We transact in the doorway and I come away with a mason jar of sweetness, the sun distilled by the precious bees. Who knew this was our mission, this pot of gold at the end of our drive? We turn and head back the way we came past hillsides and their muddy cows, past yellow dancing daffodils, past the horrible banner and all its demands, the death of bees, a West Virginia as white as can be. We bring ourselves safely home, as so are days, out and back, and yes, we are lucky a touch of sweetness, this world still can give. Thank you so much.
4: Thank you, Sarah. Um, Thank you so much for that lovely reading. Um, Okay, next we're gonna hear from Adam Schwartz. fiction writer whose debut collection of stories, The Rest of the World, won the Washington Writers Publishing House Fiction Prize just this past year, 2020. His stories have won prizes sponsored by Poets and Writers, Philadelphia Stories, and Baltimore City Paper, and have appeared in numerous literary journals. He has stories forthcoming in Raritan and Gargoyle. He is an MFA from Washington University in St. Louis. And for 23 years, Adam has taught high school in Baltimore. So here is Adam and his story.
5: Thank you. And thank you so much uh, to the Enoch Pratt and to the Ivy uh, for, for having us. It's, it's wonderful to, to be here tonight um, among all these excellent writers. Um, so I'm just gonna read a little bit from the beginning of the story that's in the anthology and the title of the story is Brothers. My brother's girlfriend, Janie, had had enough of my brother, Oren, of their bickering of a country that elected Trump, maybe of me. On her last night, she took a taxi to my apartment. She came in and we hugged. You don't have to do this, I said. I wanted her to say, you're better than Oren, more patient, More loving, more understanding, more willing to be interested in others. But she just massaged her forehead, closed her eyes, and said, I need a break. Tears welled. Just everything, she said. Brothers are supposed to look out for each other, be there for each other. I tried on a look of tender, melting concern, then pressed her roughly against the door, dropped down, and shoved my face under her mini skirt. Afterwards, The two of us collapsed on the foyer floor. She said, this is why I can't stay here. For a while, we were quiet, staring at the plaster medallions on the ceiling. Then she was up collecting her clothes, getting herself together. I feel better now, she said, clearer. Why, I asked. She held a butterfly hair clip in her teeth and lifted her hair in the hall mirror. Oh, I don't know, she said. "Orn's such an asshole. Let her go, I thought, before you destroy everything. Why don't you stay tonight, I asked. Collect your th- you can collect your thoughts. I'll get us a hotel, something nice where we can relax. Relax? Her face jutted forward. My dress, corduroys and boxers were still down on my ankles. I tugged them up and fastened my belt. Do you know what I have, Lyle? She counted Xanax inside a prescription vial. I was quiet. I have the gift of no illusions, she said. I don't know what that means, I said. She held the vial up to the light, sifting it. You've been amazing, she said. And I feel terrible for tangling you in all of this, she said, but right now, I'll just take a ride to the airport. The next day, Orrin, crazy and helpless, had crossed the Atlantic, chasing her. A month later, I met Orrin at the airport. I was terrified that he'd discovered what Janie and I had done. I love my brother. And for this reason, I could never tell him. Oren was not alone. He had with him a war veteran who'd been a gunner in Korea. Pink-fleshed and bold necked Fig was an enormous man with an enormous head and a spatula pug nose. They'd met at a hotel bar and had been traveling and drinking for weeks. We drove north up the, bit, up the bay, the three of us, to Lucky Who's, one of those places in Chinatown where withered ducks hang upside down in the window and pine crates of live chickens are stacked on the sidewalk. In a deserted dining lounge, we were shown to our red vinyl booth. The air was heavy and warm. We had not said a lot to each other yet. My brother can be cagey. Maybe he was just biding time, savoring his advantage before pouncing on my betrayal. Oren ordered a duck for himself, hunched over the fatty bird, He picked at it with primitive gusto. I pushed aside my snow peas and watched him. My brother and I share the same dark Mediterranean skin and sad dark eyes and nearly identical chins, a deep crescent groove arcing over a meaty bulb of flesh. I saw then that a thick scar was healing under Orin's chin. That's gonna scar, I said, touching my own chin. So you're a doctor now, he said, a forkful of chow fun noodles dangled before his mouth. You don't look good, I said. He sized me up with benevolent patience. A couple nights with him, his head cocked toward Fig, and you'd look worse. Now don't spoil my duck. Fig shrugged a spare rib bone between his teeth. You should have seen Fig that first night, Oren said, and threw an arm around Fig and rocked him back and forth. This guy actually thought I was French. He buried his glee in Fig's shoulder. You must be pretty good to catch us French. I said to Fig. What's that? Fig said and screwed up his face. My brother's French, I said. It's not good. He ran his tongue through the narrows of his gums, crowding me with his hulking silence. I like the sound, he said. The senile brute was dangerous. I saw that now. Thank you. Wow,
4: thank you, Adam. Um... Okay, next we're gonna hear from Hayes Davis, um, who's the author of Let Our Eyes Linger, Poetry Mutual Press, 2016. Um, His work appears in many journals and anthologies. He was a member of Cavi Canem's first cohort of fellows. He is also a high school English teacher and he lives in Silver Spring with his wife, the poet, Terry Ellen Cross Davis. So here is Hayes Davis.
6: Thank you, Kathleen. Thank you, um, everyone, for being here. Um, thank you, Adam um, and Sarah, for your work. Um, I think I'll just jump right into it. This first poem um, I wrote. So the prompt: This is what America looks like, and this is not the the poem from the anthology, but this is um, literally what what America's look what America looks like. And I read it tonight because I read a headline. I haven't read the story yet. Um, There's an opinion piece and the 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 argument is that we should give um, the national parks to to indigenous folks, which I think is a really good argument. Um, I haven't read the argument yet, but I think it's a good one on face value. So um, this is El Capitan, Yosemite Valley, California not the yellowing blue of dusk sky not the pine's earnest green their sage bark perfect posture not the warm cider of feldspar spread on the edifice like haphazard butter on a rushed morning toast not the flat black drip of horn blade of horn blend the slate blue diffusion of biotite but the monumental hole the caught breath slack-jawed stare The memory of your mother weeping at this prodigious glacier carved sentinel of the valley your own children's hushed reverent wow 35 year echoes of your own exclamation Um, one of the things that i love about dc is um, rock creek park and one of the things that i love about rock creek park is a certain green that comes out in the spring around this time Um, and for years, I just enjoyed it and I didn't really know how to describe it. Um, and then finally I was, um, doing a running exercise at my former high school with a class and I, and I did the exercise and I took a shot at it, um, and came up with a draft of what became this poem called Verger, not Verger. this is, um, this appears in, uh, fledgling rag. Um, so shout out to, uh lee hinton in that journal um, and the lancaster crew verger not verger this green is frost's gold held more than an hour it eases the april morning slogs late school year teacher exhaustion lighter than ripe limes darker than golden delicious it holds the sun Let's through enough to coat the next leaf in something indescribable even by words like verdant like glowing it is a cloud of a color makes you think if touched the leaf might disappear might transfer the color to your hand where it would climb your arm make a scientist measure your gamma levels spectral green a green jealousy envies a green that makes salamanders skitter under rocks. A green that makes the Hulk shrink back to Bruce Banner. Weep at its beauty. It's begging for a language that might make a blind man blush. Um, once again, before I read the poem from the anthology, um, I want to thank um, uh, I, don't, I don't thank the editors um, for putting the poem in this antho- in this really, really great anthology. Um, and uh, as I work on finding my own poem in this great anthology, I uh, also want to thank the Pratt for tonight. Um, thank you to the Ivy bookstore. Um, I love this area, not just for its for its natural beauty, but also for the really terrific um, writers community that exists here and that gets nurtured by this place and by the wonderful people who are part of it. So urgent care. And thank you again, um, tonight, thank you to the interpreter, uh, for, for your work. Um, thank you, Jonah, Kathleen, Shailene, um, all, all, all the writers, Emily urgent care. The skeletal image of my son's hand drops my jaw the ghostly white and gray digits usually seen on costumes movie screens day of the dead memorials are only gentle tapering and widening rounded ends and imagines cartilage no muscle and it dawns on me no skin he is stripped literally to the bone the strict Sorry, race replaced by the strict fact of phalanx, carpals, metacarpals. For four minutes during the doctor's diagnosis and the brief quiet before we leave this private room, he is only boy, only limited by metal splint with blue padding. Doctor's orders to play gently. Thank you.
4: Wow. Thank you, Hayes. Uh, I really love that poem. Uh, Okay, Um, Karan Garcia Martinez is a writer, teacher, and former diplomat who grew up in Los Angeles. She's a graduate of Williams College, the London School of Economics, uh, where she has um, Masters of Science in Psychology, and George Mason University, where she got an MFA. Um, Karan has taught at American University since 2008. Um, Her published work is in short fiction and essays and her current writing project is a novel set in Mexico in 1910, um, built on family stories recalled by her abuela, Celia. So um, here is Karan Garcia Martinez.
7: Thank you everybody. Thank you, Kathleen. Thank you attendees for being here with us and sharing this storytelling and poetry loving space with us. I wrote this short story at a time when I was frustrated about the migrant crisis at the border. And I wanted people to understand we were talking about human beings. We were talking about mothers and sons and brothers and sisters and just fellow humans. And we obviously weren't hearing that from the president at the time. Uh, So I wrote a few short stories from the standpoint of some of those mothers and some of those girls that were crossing the border and finding a life here. And then I thought I wanted to try to reach folks that needed to hear and needed to understand humanity. And, and really, I just was trying to use storytelling to create a new view. And so I imagined a Trump supporter in Ohio uh, who has to make a decision about a lot of ways that he feels when one of his best friends who is undocumented gets caught up in a lot of the rhetoric and the hate. So um, thank you for being here, Caroline, Jonah, Kathleen. Thank you for making the anthology a real thing and for letting the story have life in that anthology. Uh, The Pratt, the Ivy Bookstore, fellow writers and poets. This is good people. I heard the news when Hal and some of the guys on the early shift came to the site that day in April griping about being hungry. What gives, I asked. The coffee spot was closed. No sign or anything. Deserted parking lot. Man, I had already tasted those eggs rancheros. Lupe's strong brew. But windows and doors shut up tight. We knocked, looked for Luis's truck, but no one opened the doors. No sooner did my cell phone start ringing. I answered to Marcia's voice. Toby? Holy crap, Toby. They've arrested Luis, Lupe's here frantic with the kids. What the hell's going on? I said, Hal is just in here telling me no lights on, no cars, no food at the spot. Luis didn't even stop serving all the times Lupe was in labor. I don't know details. She's crying and said La Migra grabbed him in the driveway early this morning. None of the kids went to school. What is La Migra? look make her breakfast calm her down and put the tv on for the kids i'll see what i can find out at Goody's bar guys trailed in one by one for a lunchtime beer and the latest many of us stared at the table and shook our heads sure don't seem fair said bryce but why what'd he do i said i heard an old drug charge 30 35 years ago something with marijuana in Texas, Richie said. Steve's handling it. Fucking Texas. They don't forget nothing down there, Hal said. Forget or dig up, I asked. What's that mean? Richie asked me, his eyes narrowing. You know what I mean. Stuff you go looking for against people with the wrong color skin or the wrong accent. Your president's all about it, I said. I paused surprising myself that I'd actually just said the words almost as an accusation against my best friends. My president? I don't know, Toby. Seems like you had a couple of dozen of us in your pickup heading for that rally in Youngstown back in 2016, yelling our brains out, MAGA hats for souvenirs, lots of fist thumping and lock her up and build that wall. I was quiet for a moment. Remembering why I had voted for this guy who turned out to be such a dumb shit. But it wasn't like the other side gave us much of a choice with all the free healthcare and bathroom rights for predators to hide in and regulations on small business. I had my construction company and was barely making it. Didn't need to be paying for free birth control for guys' wives and such. Maybe I did vote for him, I said slowly. Doesn't mean I like everything he's always on about in that Twitter now and how he talks about women or other veterans like us. Yeah, the insults on McCain and the way the farmers are hurting, Hal broke in on my thoughts. But sure as shit, my vote wasn't about showing up at the door of decent folk like Luis and hauling his ass away, Hal finished my sentence. Then what was it, Richie asked us? You know, jobs, decent wages. Factories reopening, our towns, how they used to be when we were growing up, cleaning up D.C. so they'd stop ignoring hardworking people. Yeah, all those illegals taking our jobs, said Bryce, jabbing his finger in the air. I glared at Bryce and he lowered his hand. Except now I'm realizing they ain't taking our jobs. Ain't no good jobs to take. I paused to eye my posse for a reaction. Guys like Luis, and you know this, are cleaning motel rooms, working in the car wash, running a diner. Few of them are working construction. But they're the hardest goddamn workers I got on my payroll, so I got no beef. Yeah, but they bought the coffee spot. Someone could have made a good living running that place, right? Bryce said, looking around for guys to agree with him. Old man Statler had the spot up for sale for more than a year, I reminded them. No one wanted it, not even so their teenage kids could wait tables, get some work experience, not a bit of interest, until Luis and Lupe came along and offered him cash. The guys grumbled, but they had to admit I was right. Damn, never took Luis for one of those illegals, Bryce said. Yeah, he spoke English real good, Richie said. I saw him and his family at church most Sundays, Hal said. Helped me change a tire in a rainstorm last spring up on Route 143. Marijuana, though, Bryce said, that's a crime. I was astonished when Richie weighed in. Don't make me spit. I may be a cop, but you and I both know there's a half a dozen guys sitting right here, got a stash of weed from their kids in their pocket to help with their back pain. And another half a dozen hanging out at the BFW Hall, been using it for their PTSD. Don't give me this marijuana and crime bullshit. Yeah, Luis is good people. He's not like those dangerous ones raping and killing that you hear about, the ones we got to stop at the border, the ones out of control with guns and gangs, Hal said. I looked around at guys who knew Luis was one of the good ones, no different from us. What do we do now, I finally asked.
4: Thank you, Karen. Um, I think this just illustrates what fiction can do, which is to um, enter into the minds of people that you never thought you could, and to humanize and to make them sympathetic characters and feel compassion for, for them as well. And that's that is really what what um, writing can bring to this world. So thank you so much for for sharing that. Thank you. Um, uh, let's see. Well, if if everybody uh, could turn on their cameras now, we can move to the um, panel discussion uh, part of the evening. Uh, the The idea of um, the creative state of our union is perhaps um, it's a it is a, a grand idea, um, but. In Washington, uh, even though we're not even a state, we're just a little thing on the Potomac, we like to think of ourselves as representing um, the larger the larger country. So um, anyway, I would like to ask uh, the panelists now, um, first of all, I think that one thing that happened to uh, once the, the, the lockdown began was, um, I don't know if you also saw this um, on social media, the uh, sort of went around the rumor that uh, Shakespeare had written King Lear um, during a London pandemic, which I think the idea was to Make writers feel that um, it was possible to write and maybe (laughs) to write something, but it could also be a little dispiriting. Um, So, what I'd like to ask you really is what was writing like for you um, in this past year? Uh, Were you in a writing group that had to shut down? Were you in workshops? Um, Did you suddenly find yourself with more time, less time? I'd like to just sort of hear what it was like as a writer to to be in this very strange moment. And please, please speak up.
6: <laughs> just in case anyone was productive, I'm gonna jump out there and say I have not been productive. Um, so I don't feel bad <laughs> saying that later. Um, and I don't really know what it is apart from, I mean, obviously I don't ever write much during the school year. Um, and then when I do write the last few summers, it's been during a residency. And of course, that those were off the table. Um, so to some extent, it's um, it's <laughs> proximity to 10 and 12-year-olds, which is to say we have two kids. Um, and so we've been parenting 24-7. I mean, even, even though they can make their own food, even though they are far more self-sufficient than they were, um, for whatever reason... Um and my wife Terry is a writer also also in the anthology um, and neither one of us have have has has been particularly productive um, and I think it really is about that mental space that that a residency provides and that we just didn't feel like we had that in the house even if we could find a quiet corner to our to ourselves. Mm-hmm. Yeah,
4: so it's it's uh the the, the physical um. <laughs> the, the, the physical addition of family members, but I, there's probably a sort of a mental piece to that too. I don't know, what do, what do others think?
7: I have friends who got a lot of writing da- down and done during the pandemic. And I am here to say publicly that I was not one of those folks. Um, there was a, a non-COVID related death in our family and um, there were just sort of layers of grief around us and my writing was a lot of journal writing. My um, my writing was a lot of um, keeping up with friends by email. And, uh, you know, sometimes I, I know as writers, we're writing the long e- email and we're thinking, this is good writing. I've got to put this into something um, and, and I make myself stop. Uh, but I just had to forgive myself a little bit for just not being productive and trying to be trying, trying to heal and survive and still take care of all the people in my life and my students that I need to take care of.
1: I'm very lucky that um, I've been in graduate school. I'm getting an MFA. Um, And uh, I don't have children. I have, actually my son is here, but he's 23. So he's pretty self-sufficient. So um, Hayes and Terry, I can't even imagine what y'all have been through this last year and a half and people with even younger kids trying to manage that. Um, And on top of that, um, my now fiance's family has this little cabin in the mountains in West Virginia. And we went there at the beginning of the pandemic um, Thinking we were going for my spring break for one week, and that turned into two weeks, and then it turned into three months. And uh, because why should we leave? You know, we were perfectly isolated, and but the Wi-Fi was very bad, so I did all my classes on the phone to the Zoom, um, and so I was in this kind of cocoon of love and spring and spring peepers. And I wrote a lot. It was a kind of strange, unusual, beautiful, freaky, terrifying time all at once. Um, So I feel fortunate, privileged, I know, hugely, huge amount of privilege. Um, And I can't imagine having, you know, uh, if if my life had been different, I'm sure I would not have been done that kind of writing. Um then I came back to Philadelphia right in the midst of the um you know global uprisings uh last summer and I ended up um doing political activism and volunteering and just kind of reimmersing myself in in public life um to the extent that I could it, given the pandemic um and so the, it's been much more uneven since then. Um, but uh, sometimes so in other words, sometimes it inspires, and sometimes it doesn't.
4: I think having school-age kids might be the might be the tipping point in terms of, yeah, just not not getting a break. I don't know how did how did how did you manage, Adam? I know your your kids are are still home.
5: Yeah. Um, so uh, my wife's uh, maiden name is Rosen. And when one of us is stuck, we say we're (laughs) frozen-rosen. And uh, so (laughs) I've been sort of frozen-rosen. And um, uh, I guess I've been sort of frozen-rosen for uh, somewhat personal reasons. Um, So I'm in year 23, teaching high school in Baltimore, Um, all the stories and in my book are inspired by getting to know the kids in my classroom. And um, issues around appropriation are hardly new, but inside my head, they've kind of intensified because um, with my book coming out, um, you know, I, I'd never get through a, um, I don't usually get through an interview or a reading without being asked Um, you know, some version of whether I think I might have trespassed by um, writing stories inspired by getting to know the kids in my classroom. And um, so the issue is just kind of intensified in my head. And, um, um, you know, I'm really drawn to writing stories about teenagers in Baltimore coming of age. And I've written a book full of those stories. But at the moment, I feel like I'm at some kind of pivot where, um, I guess I'm rethinking whether I can go forward with, um, with this, um, with these kinds of stories. So I'm frozen frozen. <laughs> yeah,
4: I, um, well, I, I wanted to, I mean, the, the other sort of really, um, large event of this past year whose reverberations are still being felt in the um sentencing yesterday of of um Derek Chauvin um followed by yet another um police killing of a of a teenager um the the this murder of George Floyd um did I guess just because it was Everyone could see it. No one could deny that, that this is what had happened. Really brought um, a lot of uh, racial justice questions to the fore. And then people were, um, despite the lockdown, in the streets. And and I am I'm, I'm wondering um, has did that affect uh, your writing? Um, if so, how? Um, and has it sort of changed the trajectory of where you want to go as a, as a writer?
7: So I actually wrote something on Facebook um, saying, okay, I'm off the floor and I'm back in the game. And, you know, I think for a lot of us, uh, with with uh, humanitarian bents uh the whole time trump was in office we spent a lot of time protesting and writing and uh signing petitions and just constantly being agitated and uh, speaking for myself when when biden and and harris came in i just kind of took a little bit of a break <laughs> and just thought okay grown-ups are in charge people with ethics are in charge um, and and i I do want to say I, I welcome folks in, in the audience, our attendees from all stripes. I, I, I say this in the spirit of a conversation uh, not to sound like like uh, like demagoguery. Um, but we can't we can't rest. there's, there's just too much to do and uh, from gun rights to racial equity to um, important legislation, We need to really say this matters and we want it. Um, We still have to be awake and do. And uh, I think that those of us who are writers, who are poets, who are musicians, who are visual artists, who are filmmakers, this is our medium. We, We need to keep opening minds, creating new views, continuing to affect the conversation in the way that we can. Uh, I know there's mostly a Maryland crowd here. I'm in Vienna, Virginia, and many times I say it's going to take all of us within 20 miles just showing up on the Capitol and starting to scream and yell. Well, we saw what happened with that on January 6th, right? Maybe not so effective. Scary. Uh, So give, give people a voice. Give folks who don't have a voice. Imagine people we don't know, talk to people that we want to be in their heads and put their words out there. Sarah, I wish I were a better poet. These times feel to me fragmented and condensed and poetry seems to be a form I wish I could communicate in. Um, And I'm going to stop there because I could go on and on, but I just think uh, the world needs us, any of us, who, who are creative and can bring voices and perspectives and truths to people to keep us all awake and keep us moving.
1: Oh, Karan, I wish I could write stories. So <laughs> <laughs> I can't do plot to save my life, but um, it's true that poets are doing remarkable things um, at this moment and have been for you know, the last 20 years has seen really a flowering of poetry of conscience. Um, social justice work and uh, that is really has fed me I know it's fed social justice movements um, all the work that the poets are doing poets of color black poets queer poets poets with disabilities um, this just kind of an astonishing time I mean Kathleen to your question I've been writing poetry that tries to call white supremacy to account for a long time I'm descended on my daddy's side from enslavers in Virginia um trying to wrestle with that heritage which is our American story um and so um the past year has been um devastating inspiring moving um I right now working on a longish poem about another police shooting that hardly got any attention um beyond the area in Los Angeles I don't know how you know it just was one story that I saw of a man named Dijon Kizzy, who was stopped for riding a, by his bicycle on the wrong side of the street.
8: Mm-hmm.
1: And in the poem, you know, the, uh, the sheriff said, well, it's a, it's a bad neighborhood, it's a war zone. Yeah. You're left with nothing. I was left with nothing but, but I mean, sarcasm because the horror, you know, like exhausted the horror. So that's part of the struggle that I've had is how do we find language as uh, Quran was asking, you know, how do we find imaginative language for what is a just bare horror? Uh, and you know, I'd like to toss that to my fellow poet Hayes who, who does that, manages to do that. Um, and I, I would welcome to hear
6: his thoughts. Yeah, I um, I have not tried to write. Um, I mean, you know, urgent care. I didn't talk much when I read the poem. Um, came to me in a flash, kind of the moment of the poem. Um, my, I was coaching my son's soccer team, and he broke his finger um, while I was playing with this with his sister in between quarters on the sideline. Not actually during the game. <laughs> But we're there in the room, and I'm looking at his at the x-ray and I'm realizing that there's no that there's no skin on his hand in this moment um, and oh. I have written about him and my daughter in school. I guess some of why I haven't written more is that I recognize. Not to recognize, but I have a certain level of privilege, right? We drop them off at school. they go to an independent school, we drop them off at school. We were all home. It was always birthday watching what happened at the capitol and so and i don 't know there's a part of me that 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 feels a certain way about saying this, but I have a certain amount of privilege in distance from things that are happening that might make me write if I were more approximate to them. If I had gone to a, a protest, I would probably start feeling a certain way, start having language in my head. Um, but I went to one that students at the school where I teach organized, um, but you know, the school is in Northwest DC. We walked down Wisconsin Avenue. It was not, it was, I never felt in danger. Um, and so, when I come at race in my writing, um, I don't have, it's, cc put me on the spot, um, I don't have words right now that feel as, there are people writing about race, Terence Hayes and his sonnets, um, terry a more perfect union right this is this is what america and race looks like right now um this is you know that's that's that that's a voice sarah to answer your question terry's is a voice that's handling that that's that's relevant now and the funny thing about publishing is you know we got the call around new years that she had won the contest and the book comes out like a year later. And so she's starting to wonder, is it going to be relevant? Is it going to be relevant? And then it is because it's going to continue to be relevant. Um, so part of my answer, and I'm sorry, I'm taking a lot of time and I don't mean to monopolize, but, um, part of my answer is I know I'm going to come back to writing about race in a more immediate sense. Um, and I think I will always try to come at it, Um, through the lens of humanity, because um, Adam, you're sort of questioning whether you have what it means for you to write those stories. And I'm not here to give you agency or not give you agency, but what I actually said to my students um, recently or said to somebody else recently was I would not, I know what it was. Um, we had a guest at school today talking about writing from different perspectives, and this is somebody who believes that a lot of different people can write from different perspectives if they have lived that perspective long enough to understand, if, if they have been in, in proximity to that perspective long enough to understand the nuances and subtleties that get lost when people write about a different perspective and don't do it carefully. So, my one single person answer to you, Adam, is I would love to read those stories because I, you 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 would you can write those stories having taught those students better than I can, having not taught them for what it's worth my individual answer um, That was long and rambling, and I apologize thank, but. You, thank you for that. I, I appreciate you saying yeah.
4: Well, there there is something too I think about, uh, and some some writer I think probably most writers need a certain distance or a certain period of digestion. Maybe um, Caroline and I were talking the other day about um, Irene Nemorovsky's book *Sweet Frances* about um, fleeing the Nazis um, in Paris, and she was writing this as she was actually fleeing. Um, and she was, she was later arrested and, and died um, in a, in a um, Nazi camp um, and her daughters found these notebooks that she was writing as it was happening. But I think it seems that for many um, writers there needs to be a kind of period of, of digestion and, and contemplation Um, That sort of uh, goes to my next question, which is also something that uh, Caroline and I were talking about um, in terms of the pandemic. Um, uh, The last big pandemic in our country was 100 years ago, um, the so-called Spanish flu. We'd probably have a better name for it if it were were, um, today. Um, But I read that uh, 50 million people um, died in, not in America, but in the world in, this, in the Spanish flu and um, almost three quarters of a million Americans. Many more people died of the Spanish flu than died in the first world war. But uh, we have so many works of art about the first world war. And there's really, we couldn't think of anything that addresses the, the, the pandemic. And it's like it just vanished. And I guess my question is, what, what do you think about this pandemic? I mean, now we're, we're emerging from it. It looks like it's eventually going to fade. And what, what do you think about that as a, as a, a subject for art? And, and why do things like this tend to disappear? I guess that's my question.
7: I think one thing I've thought about with the pandemic that I hope gets captured is how we are all experiencing a different part of it. It's literally the blind man with the elephant. Uh, I may f- be feeling the trunk, and someone else a foot, and someone else an ear. That there are so many pandemic stories. Yes, it's universal, but there, I think there will be an explosion, I hope there'll be an explosion of art, and I'm thinking of the writer Alice McDermott, whom I saw speak after 9-11, and she said, from now on, all of our stories will have elements of the grief and the mourning of September 11, and I think that's true and not true, I think we have short memories, (laughs) and, uh, and so I wonder about The pandemic, for some folks that have gotten richer and have just baked and lived in their homes and not had to commute and just walked in beautiful neighborhoods every day, really hasn't been that bad. They're just kind of angry that they haven't been able to take a trip. Um, For others who have lost numbers of members of their family who don't know when they'll work again. Who, who have long haul symptoms, who lost businesses, uh, this, this will be life altering for them. And, and so I think we owe it to our civilization. I think we owe it to ourselves. I think we owe it to the people who will come behind us uh, to write about this. And, and you're right, Kathleen, I don't even really remember learning about the Spanish flu in school. And I could tell you dates and historical events up the wazoo, but I, I, it was just kind of a blip.
2: Mm-hmm. Uh,
7: I think we can learn. I think when we learn about the hubris that, that our, our leadership, unfortunately, in this country with which they approached it, the disregard of human life, we better write about this we better write poems and 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 publish uh stories and make films and documentaries and write songs because we need to we need to we need to learn from it we need to honor the people that aren't here anymore the dreams lost and the way forward
1: it has exposed uh and laid bare because um, with the inequities in our society, which were already obvious to those on the you know uh, worse end of them, um, and it has driven that those inequities you know even made them even more extreme, as Quran uh, was saying, and so um, that is the American story that art has to face and expose. Um, and imagine a way out of. I mean, I think sometimes we forget that one of our roles as artists, if we can, is to imagine alternatives. (laughs) You know, what could a post-pandemic world look like that had healthcare for all, that, you know, we didn't have to pay for? What would public safety look like if it wasn't so militarized and if it wasn't um, based on, uh, you know, enforcing enslavement um, in its history. We can imagine these worlds. Um, we need our citizens, our imaginative citizens to, to try to do that, um, even though it's hard. And most often we're um, moved to express our outrage, which is also necessary. We have to expose injustice uh, in ways that moves people in their hearts and not just you know the PowerPoint presentation or what have you. But, um, but we also have to imagine, you know, alternatives. And so, um, that's what I hope that people will, you know, take from from the pandemic is uh, this extreme inequality um, that we're seeing even more so as Karan was saying, and um, and how you know how we could create a different society. Um, you know, the Spanish, there's something about wars that, you know, was like the machismo of celebrating them that is freaky, um, that makes for them to be these central figures in our historical narrative, central moments. um, And whereas illness is a kind of, dare I say it, you know, feminine suffering, uh, and the people who cared for the sick have traditionally been women. So mm-hmm. um, it's kind of undervalued as a dramatic moment in history. I'm just spinning this out of,
4: yeah, you know,
1: but that interesting, uh, you know, dichotomy that you just highlighted, um, Kathleen, it just strikes me that way. It's, it's exactly very dramatic.
4: That that is an interesting point, the the sort of masculine feminine, because yeah, we think of war as being a you know a, a battle between good and evil or different forces, and co- there's the drama. But of course, there is also there's a lot of drama in in a in a sick room and in a in a hospital, and and um, and but it's it's maybe something that has not really come to the to the
5: floor as much. I was going to add that um, I don't have the chops to do it, but I feel like it's going to, you know, when somebody captures the way that the pandemic has been politicized, it's it's going to be an artist who's able to capture that reality. If mm-hmm. you had said to me five years ago that we're going to come to a time where you know, a third or 40% of the country doesn't believe the Washington Post, doesn't believe the New York Times and demonizes science, I would have said, what? Yeah. Uh, but, you know, I, th- I think it, uh, it'll be an artist, uh, a novelist or a poet or a filmmaker who, who kind of brings uh, brings this reality home. It reminds me of a, a line that I read by Philip Roth years ago um, in which he was describing you know, an era in the 70s, maybe around Watergate. And he said, it, it, he said, reality, the reality embarrasses the imagination. That it, the idea that it makes our imaginative powers, that reality had made our imaginative powers feel meager. Um, <laughs> I, I sort of feel like, like that's happening now.
6: Yeah. Just to quickly build on what Sarah said, which I never thought of as a brilliant insight, Sarah. I think of the Walt Whitman poem, The Wound Dresser. And the framing of that poem the the way that the speaker enters the memory of caring for soldiers in the hospital is that there are these people around the speaker who want these glorious stories of war right who who was the bravest who did this what battles et cetera et cetera and the speaker in that poem and Whitman, as we know him is a is a is 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 not the kind of man who would tell those glorious war stories right um, but that's not the that's not the male voice that endures right so you, you mentioned world war 1 I, I think of hemingway you know i think uh, you mentioned you know um, i just thought of tim o'brien and vietnam there there are these there are men who have written you know stories that, that get read and read and read and poems that get read and read and read about wars Um, but the poems that the the poems about caring don't have that same glory they're not they're not they're not you know the the audience for poetry is not or the audience that would read poems about healing I don't think there's as broad an audience that that's going to read poems about care versus poems about war.
4: Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Even though I think uh, the First World War might have been the first war where I mean, you think of like Rupert Brooke and and um, and All Quiet on the Western Front and and
5: the trench coat. Yeah, the, trench
4: yeah. yeah the, the you know they sort of um, got rid of the myth of war being glorious and made it grim. But still, it was, it was, it was men. Men doing, men acting, <laughs> and and uh, yeah. Um, I like the idea too of of uh, of writers ima- not only um, kind of looking at, at what is and deploring it, but imagining another. Alternative, and certainly that's one. I think that's one impulse behind a lot of writing: is is kind of rewriting what happened, and maybe making it, making it better, making it, making it into something that has meaning. Um, well, uh, one last thing that I'd like to ask all of you is, um, what have you been reading? this past year? What um, have there been writers that you've turned to for comfort? Have there been writers that you've discovered that have kind of helped you um, make sense of this time? And um,
5: um, I'll, I'll, I'll begin by saying yeah. I recently finished um, Inheritance, which is um, a nonfiction memoir by Danny Shapiro. And it's, um, it's just oh. totally, completely absorbing, and And she writes about um, family and identity with such depth and clarity mm-hmm. um, i I can't recall being quite as absorbed in a memoir as i as I was in that book in in a long time um,
7: I was twisting around trying to look at my <laughs> uh, <laughs> I mean, I hate to keep returning to this. I think it's just because I've been ruminating and trying to make sense of grief and loss, uh, and and we read we meaning my book my book group. Um, shout out to one of my college friends who's from book group and got my quick note. Hey, there's no book club tonight, so come. No. To us. Uh, hi Sarah, um, but we read a searing. Imagined story about the wife of Shakespeare, uh, grieving yeah. the death of her son, called Hamnet—not Hamlet, but Hamnet. I don't know if anyone's mm-hmm. read that.
4: I know so that book
7: just wrecked us. Um, I, I
5: have a I have a writer friend who raves about that book.
7: Yeah, I do too. <laughs> it's it's not an easy read. In fact, I in and. I mean, two other members of our group had lost their mothers in the last few months. I had lost my brother. I mean, we just, we were a grieving group. And then we read this book. And there is something about seeing the way you feel that is expressed so perfectly that, yes, you're crying about it, but there's universality and there's solidarity and there's understanding in the grief. and so there's there's that, um, nonfiction wise, we read the warmth of other sons, which which is this, this again, talking about what history doesn't really teach you, this migration from south to north of black folk and the, the heaviness of that, the grief of that and separated families um, has mesmerized us. We also tried to read fiction by black female writers in an effort to understand again um, some of what we're feeling um, now Uh, and in that spirit we read something called girl woman other by a British writer and that's why I was craning my neck to try to see it Um, if anybody remembers she's British and it's it's one of those books you almost have to get used to how she's writing it because it's very stream of consciousness she's inside the head of 10 or 12 different women who are all somehow connected uh wrapped up in the end but some of them are are it it takes place in london some of them are actually African emigres, others born and raised there, some are half uh, biracial. Um, anyway, I, I'll stop there. Yeah, Bernadine Evaristo. Thank you, uh, Shailene, for that. A uh, woman, other. Um, because, yes, I mean, to try to be up and more informed, I've tried to read candy and, and White Fragility and those, but but I. I also just get so much out of fiction that's that, that's portraying some of those same ideas and emotions so that's that's kind of been a project this last year uh, a worthwhile one
1: I'm reading Terry's book A More Perfect Union um, that's Hayes <laughs> wife um, Terry Ellen Cross Davis and uh, it's stunning and so important, and um, another DC poet Taylor Johnson. Um, their uh, book is called Inheritance, um, also really moving, and um, the novel There There by Tommy Orange, mm-hmm. um, who's a native writer from, Oak, or well, book set in Oakland, um, yeah. and it's about kind of the urban or urban uh, native experiences. Really powerful. Um, I also read the newspaper, (laughs) Um, and uh, I read the New Yorker and um, other literary journals, Um, but I I like, sometimes um, just I need, you know, to read something that is not, uh, before I go to sleep, I have to read something that isn't going to keep me up all night um so um sometimes like the artists profiles in the new yorker um are are comforting to me
4: (laughs) i agree they're good but they're they're not they're not so riveting that you can't can't,
1: or or, well they're not or you know artists of the past so i can't i can't do anything about the, the you know the political struggles of 75 years ago I, I mean I exposed them but you know
6: um that is helpful
2: yeah.
6: yeah it's a quick addition Toy Derekot's new and selected poems called I like the letter I oh. um, is really good and this is not new but there's um there's an anthology by the Carolina Writers Collective led by Lenard D. Moore he's the editor and I've just we we it's not too old i think it came out in the last few years really really good anthology um i wish i had the title but it's but it's the it it's the north carolina black writers collective
4: okay i'm gonna i'm gonna put all these in the in the chat um so yeah i think um well, it's, it's interesting to, to go back to, to books, I think in, in moments that are difficult to go back to, to books that are reassuring. And, and, and uh, I, I, I do think that, that pretty much everything is, no matter what the um, purported subject is, tends to be about the time in which it's written And um, I found, I read, uh, um, it's it's quite long, although I I enjoy it very much, um, the last volume of Hilary Mantel's um, trilogy um, about Thomas Cromwell. And um, I just, I just couldn't help but see that Uh, Henry VIII was so like Trump and I I felt that as she was writing it that Trump and Boris Johnson must have been in her mind. um, Anyway, uh, Caroline and and Jonah, would you like to um, come out on stage and and, uh, is there anything you'd like to say about the anthology or uh, comments you'd like to make about conversation no i mean this has been a great conversation
0: uh i i'm i am so enjoyed just listening to everybody's point of view that i've i've uh thought so much about where um how we write during the pandemic you know how we as artists think about um, the social upheavals, the racial reckoning that we're going through. Um, When are we gonna be ready to write about it? I mean, I'm grappling with it as a writer too. I think I wrote in the chat that um, I, Uh, was in New York City during 9-11 and I never felt I could write about it and somehow in this moment of the pandemic I finally feel I can write about 20 years ago which I thought I would never be able to write about that the time um, uh, that I worked in midtown Manhattan and you know had um, my husband at the World Trade Center at 820 that day. Uh, just missing the planes you know that moment where you just think your life's gonna end and then it's a miracle that it doesn't and then what happens I always think of the Ray Carver wrote a poem at the end of his life called gravy that it was just that he got he got to to live just to, uh, to see you know his work completed and that was gravy and sometimes I feel like the last twenty years was that for me, which I know sounds odd because i 'm planning to be around a lot longer <laughs> um, but this has been so eye opening for me jonah uh, what 's your what 's your thoughts
8: no so again it 's been a wonderful discussion and thank you all to have read and thank you, especially to Hayes and Sarah for contributing um, and for being here and Karan and Adam, thank you so much and again you know with with this book when we were reading the submissions that were coming in, kind of going with what Caroline was saying, um, to respond to a moment so immediately, or at least what we received was so palpable and so immediate for what was happening in our national narrative that we were just all so impressed um, by you, by the writers for giving us such work and for this discussion this evening. So thank you very much. In addition
6: to adding my thanks, I would not be a good son if I didn't shout out my mom, Beth Bader, for coming to the reading. Thank you, Mom. Oh. Oh,
0: thank you, Mom. <laughs> thank you. I think my
1: son and my honey are on too, so oh. <laughs> but I want to give a special um thanks to the editors um of this anthology and uh Jonah in particular as the poetry editor, um, is the one I've had the most contact with and has just done an amazing. I mean those of us who've put on programming and, you know, organized pub events and publishing, we know how much chasing after writers entails. (laughs) And um, Jonah, you've just done an incredible job and I really want to thank you. Um, I feel so like treasured, which is what we, you know, we always want each other to feel treasured and that's how I felt throughout this process. So thank you.
0: (laughs) <laughs> um, I have yeah. to say the ha- one of the happiest days of my life is when we all met about the anthology and I had just originally thought of it as a fiction anthology because that's what I write and Jonah said what about poetry? Is there any room for poetry? And I was like oh there's always room for poetry <laughs> and then he volunteered to be the poetry editor and he's just been uh, a wonderful partner and Uh, Kathleen, a terrific publisher, and all our writers that have participated. It's just been very, you know, uh, in all the moments that we've been isolated in the pandemic, this has been, um, and and tired and exhausted. This has been the most invigorating experience. And I think we even saw that tonight, where, you know, uh, uh, to... To open up to and, and share our stories about our struggles to write or how we're writing differently or new um, at this moment, um, you know I hope it I hope it encourages the people who are watching to write um, and I hope it encourages us to write because the world needs artists i mean let's just be frank the world needs us no matter what they think they need us, and we need our libraries to uh so that we can always have access to books um no matter how rich or poor we are um and so thank you shailene and tracy yes. um and I'm- i see everybody's writing the world oh my gosh such nice notes in the chat it doesn't look like we have many questions have we answered everybody's questions
4: yes. anyone have any more questions yeah yeah i think
0: uh we're we're on for just a few more minutes yeah yeah well i just want to
4: say there there was i mean putting the book out was um a little bit of a roller coaster and there was a moment when uh you know the 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 pandemic was. it seemed like this was really um going to be something that was going to keep us home for quite some time and then there was the all the the political upheaval and the protests and we just started thinking this is such a frivolous thing that we're doing, and we we, we should maybe just scrap it and and you know do, do something more meaningful, like write write more postcards <laughs> to get out the vote. But I I I'm glad that uh, we persisted and we we got we we ended up getting so many wonderful submissions that this had to happen.
8: Yeah, I mean, I will just say that this book kind of working on this book got me through the pandemic, got me through the summer and got me through the fall. And it was a wonderful way to spend the time. So it's been a pleasure.
5: Yeah, I just I just wanted to thank you all again for uh, putting this thing together, Caroline and Kathleen and Jonah, I can only imagine um, all, all the work it took to put together this amazing uh, collection of, um, of writers' works. And I especially wanna uh, thank Caroline for the wonderful editing you did on my story. I looked at that story one bajillion times and I, n- I never saw um, the ways that you saw to, uh, to sharpen and tighten it and improve it. So I really appreciate the way you improved my story.
7: Here, here, if I could add something, I, I have, I have three sons and the youngest who's a musician was here tonight from Los Angeles. Oh, <laughs> so that was really special. Uh, and speaking of good editors, Adam, I had this story and I, it wasn't quite right. And I read it uh, over the summer aloud to two of my three sons who were in the backyard and they gave me such good advice and one thing they said is mom we know you have a really strong point to make but you can't demonize the people who differently and so, it really made me look at the character of toby with a lot of humanity mm-hmm. i think the story was better for that and and i i wish all of us could 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 kind of channel that compassion to keep these conversations going right. compassion for each other and understanding and and I think that way we'll get somewhere. Uh, Last thing I'll say just to the folks that are assembled here too, um, the poet Naomi Shihab Nye was captured in a podcast with Krista Tippett in her series on being, and anyone who was here tonight would, would love to hear this podcast. Basically, Naomi is saying all of us should be keeping journals, even if it's a few sentences a day, that this is poetry and we are the vessels through which it will pass. And we may not believe that we have anything profound to say, but just the dailiness of living through this pandemic and these times is very profound. And I think it's an invitation to all of us to just write down what we see, write down what we hear, write down where we are. And um, for all of us to make sense out of these these times. And thank you again, uh, Caroline and Jonah and Kathleen, for for this anthology that makes sense or tries to of so many experiences. Okay, well, you're
4: here. Thank you, everyone, and thank you so much for agreeing to um, participate and for your beautiful words and for. Adding to them with with this conversation. And I think Shailene is just going to say a
0: final thank you. uh, But thank you, Shailene and Tracy, from the bottom
8: of our hearts. Thank you, Shailene and Tracy. Shailene is a champion. Thank you, everyone.
4: Thank you you so
3: much. Thank you. Yeah, Um, yeah, I'm just going to add a few more thank yous. To that round of thank yous um thank you kathleen for your skillful moderating tonight thank you so much to the writers sarah hayes karan and adam for your wonderful readings and your really meaningful remarks that i think inspired all of us and made us feel less alone um thank you caroline and jonah for your contributions and also for bringing this event to the library And I wanna thank the Ivy Bookshop, our ASL interpreter. And I wanna thank all of you for spending time with us tonight. Um, We posted a survey in the chat or in the Facebook comments. And if you could take a minute to fill that out, if you're in the audience, we'd really appreciate it. Have a wonderful rest of your evening, everyone. Take care and stay safe. Thank you, bye. Everyone, thank you. Good night, thank you
1: everyone.